0: Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. If you are a dog trainer who wants to help more people and make more money with your amazing dog training skills, then you should check out Dom Hodgson's Grow Your Pet Business Fast business coaching programs. I was a member of Dom's Pet Business Inner Circle and in 2017, I attended his inaugural Poodle's Pit Pet Business Bootcamp. So I can state without question that his marketing methods are effective and they will help you to make more money. By listening to Dom's advice, I personally increased my training fees by 300%. Dom has twice been a guest on this podcast and earlier this year, direct response marketing strategist Dan Kennedy called Dom Europe's number one business coach of dog trainers, professional dog walkers, and pet sitters. So you can book a place at Dom's next event, Impact, the Pet Business Marketing Success Summit, by going to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash impact. Or you can check out his free 33 ideas at www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash 33 ideas. I've also recently started to offer online consultations. If you're a dog trainer that wants to up their game, maybe you're a little bit confused about something or you um, struggle to teach one thing particularly and you want to go over that, or perhaps you're a dog owner that's struggling to teach something or work on one aspect of your dog's behavior, then let's book in a call. You can do that at nickbenjacom slash book these have been hugely popular. I'm really excited about the response I've got to doing these online consultations. If you're, you know, the other day I had an email from someone that was saying, you know, I don't feel worthy of doing these sessions. If that's you, please don't feel that way. I want to work with you. I want to work with people that listen to this podcast. And, you know, you are exactly the type of people I want to work with. So I don't want you to feel that you can't do that for whatever reason. Um, don't let that stop you. You know, I'm, I'm really excited to work with some of you guys. So if you want to book something in, you can do that at nickbenger.com book. Today, I'm talking to Michael Shikashio. Michael is the former president of the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. He's also been featured in the New York Times, the New York Post, the Baltimore Sun, the Women's Health Magazine, and a whole load more. His speciality is training aggressive dogs, and when he's not working with clients, he's traveling the world speaking on that topic. So, let's get into it. Hey Michael, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, it's great.
0: No, it's a pleasure to have you, so just to give a bit of background to people that are tuning in, like... We first met at the IAABC conference in Manchester. I got the opportunity to see your talk, so I feel like I have a little bit more of an understanding of where you're coming from. So hopefully I can kind of guide the questions in the right way here.
1: (laughs) I'm looking forward to it.
0: (laughs) So maybe a bit of a cliched starting point, but I am genuinely interested. How did you first get interested in dogs? How did you get involved with this? Because obviously you specialize in in aggression, and that's quite an interesting... Uh, topic in itself so how did you get interested in all this kind of stuff
1: uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to sit still much with one particular area. So I actually, when I first got into dogs, I wanted to open a dog daycare of all things. And um, when I started looking into that, I said, well, I should probably learn a little bit about dog behavior before I do anything with the dog daycare. And that's when I kind of caught the behavior bug. I was like, oh, this is this is really interesting. And so I started training and taking clients on on that side of things. I was also doing a lot of um fostering dogs. For different rescues. So I had uh, at one point over 100 dogs come through my home <laughs> as fosters. And, and and that's where I really started to get into it because they start to send you more and more difficult dogs <laughs> as uh, rescues will. And I, I really got fascinated by the behavior side of things. And then that kind of just snowballed into what I'm doing now is just concentrating strictly on aggression because I was taking. Uh, other types of behavior cases before separation anxiety and, that, and those kind of behavior problems uh, but then I, I found that I like the I like being able to specialize in something so to, to concentrate on one area because you don't have to shift gears and you, you kind of feel like you're in the matrix sometimes right you're just really able to flow into these aggression cases and you see the same things a lot over and over. Um, so you don't have to switch gears. And that's tough when you're doing, you know, you go from one puppy case, you know, you're playing with puppies in one case and then the next case, you got to really be, be careful the dog doesn't bite your face off. <laughs> that requires a lot of gear switching in terms of how you're thinking and how you're approaching the client. So now that I'm just strictly taking aggression cases, it doesn't require that same kind of efforts.
0: So it, it, did you find this kind of, love for working aggression cases whilst you were fostering?
1: I, I believe so. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I was more into behavior in general. Um, so getting kind of past, you know, quote unquote, you know, you know, training or basic training, I was more interested in the behavior problems. Um, so it wasn't just necessarily aggression at that point. It was, it was all of the typical behavior problems that a client might contact you for. So, um, but then it, it, again, it just, my, my int- was always in aggression helping dogs with aggression issues.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things I get asked a lot by people that are just starting out in this industry is about specializing, right? Like they're not actually sure which route that they want to take. A really common one is because here in the UK, particularly we we really tend to differentiate between dog trainers and dog behaviorists. And and people don't tend, you know, people often see those as completely different careers or different career choices and it's kind of like You know, they haven't worked with any dogs in any one-to-one situations, so they really don't have anything to base what they want to specialize on. Is that something you've come across before?
1: I I think so. Yes, Um, I I think it's a great idea to specialize uh, because it's it's good for business uh, for one reason. Uh, When people know that you specialize in something, uh, you get that kind of that client base, that niche of. of clients coming to you and um, I and again I think you just get better at that one area Uh it's you know I have clients sometimes uh, So so wayward client will find me on Google somehow and ask me about you know helping them with their agility dog or something else I have, I have no idea what to do there you know so I know people to send you to but I I wouldn't know the first thing about teaching you know the weave poles or something so I always refer those to somebody that specializes in that so um, I, I think uh, we're seeing more of that in in the U.S. at least in terms of uh, trainers kind of focusing on one area, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a great thing.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, and I also think you're, you're spot on. I, I think that's a really key part of the business side of things, isn't it? Having your own niche, and um, it's interesting that you you bring it up because I think that sometimes as a dog trainer, you can feel like you have to try and keep up with everything, and that's quite overwhelming in itself. And of course, I'm not saying that you don't, you know, read a huge amount on all that. But I'm wondering is if when you're kind of um, looking at continuing your own education and exposing yourself to various materials, if you're trying to, if now that you have this specialty in mind, you're a little bit more laser focused on the aggression stuff.
1: Yes. um, You know, I would definitely say I'm almost always laser focused on the aggression stuff. I'd like to stay up to date on all the latest. However, I think it's very important to uh, continue to learn about the other areas of behavior. Uh, You know, you just did, for instance, you just did that podcast with uh, Craig Ogilvie and he was teaching about playing and and using tug. Um, And, you know, I learned some things. I I thought it was a great podcast and things like that. I said, well, I could probably incorporate a little of that more into my cases as well. So I think it's very important to, to know about all of the different facets of behavior uh, and training that are in the latest, um, what's going on, how you can apply that to your specialty.
0: Yeah, I think you would get on really well, actually. Craig's awesome.
1: He's a really cool guy. Yeah, I love that process. It was fantastic. I learned quite a bit in that one. Oh, awesome. awesome.
0: Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I love the aggression stuff, and, and, I, and I think that sometimes aggression is a little bit scary, right? Like for people, you know, especially if they're, they're new and they're kind of getting into this stuff, or maybe they're a dog owner, right? And, and your dog starts to act aggressively. That's kind of your worst nightmare, right? Like, you know, you have visions of your dog either attacking someone else's dog or attacking you or someone else. And and that is really your worst nightmare as a, as a dog owner. So maybe it would be useful if you could kind of describe, I mean, we were talking about the podcast. Obviously, your approach varies from dog to dog, and, and that can be uh, that can make a huge difference. But what are kind, what are some of the kind of similarities that kind of thread what you do together?
1: Um, you know, the the thing that I, I stress a lot now in my seminars and workshops is it's really it's not so much the dogs anymore for me. It's the people, um, and, and I think that's true for most training, but really in aggression cases. Um, so much is dependent on the clients and on their sort of how they're feeling about the case too because it's a very most of the time these aggression cases there's a there's a very deep emotional side to it and being aware and cognizant of that and how to navigate those waters with the client i think is is more important than the actual behavior modification with the dog you start to see the same cases and over and over, and that the behavior mod's really not that much different. It's the same thing. You know this. It's, it's, you, you go in with your counter conditioning, your desensitization, your differential reinforcement. And, and a lot of the times it's the same thing. It's just these rinse and repeat the behavior side. It's the client side that we really have to focus on and, and being able to recognize when they're emotionally drained. Uh, you have to recognize the risks involved, um, in the, you know, the emotional impact it could be having to not only the family but to their communities with some of these dogs um, I'm working a case now that it's it's blown up to you know it's all over the the mayor's involved the oh, wow. the towns involved the there's a bunch of lawyers involved there's social media you know you know how that gets uh-huh. uh, so Think about the emotions behind that that case and and how every you know how you have to kind of navigate that carefully. So
0: yeah, that's incredible I because I think that that again <laughs> like, God, we're talking about like that is your worst nightmare as a as a trainer as well. You know that you're gonna be dealing like I think I remember when I was studying right like there was a real hesitance of any of the people that I was learning from to help people that. Um, have dogs that could potentially turn into what you just said, right? Like the PR nightmare, because, you know, if you're seen to be uh, this person's dog trainer and that dog goes and nails someone, and then that becomes big news, like, you know, that could really come back on you. Is that something that you worry about?
1: Um, I, I, I am aware of it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I don't, I think there's a lot more, um, um i think people or trainers get a little bit more worried about that than they really need to um because there's with dog bites there's a, it's a lot more of the societal views on how dog bites uh, are viewed and the perception of dog bites and this can vary from client to client as well as well as from a, a public point of view you know so because the average dog bite is not going to cause more damage than you know somebody cutting uh vegetables in their kitchen or a child slipping and falling on their knee there there's and there's that does that stuff doesn't make the news but when a dog bites it's certainly the hysteria around it surrounds that so i think um from a liability aspect it's actually not as concerning for trainers do
0: you think it's more that we see like these extreme cases in the news of you know like fatalities and stuff you know like these are the extreme minority
1: Absolutely, the the vast or the, the the actual minority is those cases. They they make the news because they're um, sensational, you know, and, and and they they get people to read and, and to go to those uh, news outlets. But uh, those those are such in the minority. Less than one tenth of a percent of cases end up in serious you know, maulings or death to the victim. It's very, very rare.
0: Well, let's break it down. I know I want to get to the client stuff as well, but let's break down some of the things that you spoke about, you know, differential reinforcement, counter conditioning. Uh, I forget the other one you, you mentioned there, uh, maybe it was desensitization or something like that. Yes. Um, those as dog trainers, those terms are like our bread and butter, right? <laughs> but can maybe Can you tell us what that looks like?
1: So, um, I, I, as you know, I try to keep it very simple for my clients. So I don't, I don't typically use those terms with clients. As trainers, we can, we can use those terms and understand what they mean. Um, but it's with, with clients, I'm always asking them, you know, what do you want your dog to do instead when that, that trigger or that stimulus presents itself? And you have to ask that a few times. <laughs> so what do you want your dog to do instead of this barking and lunging? Well, I just want him to stop barking and lunging. <laughs> what? What? What do you want him to do instead? Well, I just I just want him to be good. Okay. What? What does that look like? <laughs> okay, so, um, so um, you know, so that's where that differential reinforcement comes in, where we're just we're reinforcing alternative or you know desirable behaviors in the dog when that that particular stimulus presents itself. And then, of course, if you're doing it correctly and you're keeping the, the set you're setting the stage for success for that dog, the counter is coming along for the ride. The classical conditioning is, is, is always intertwined with our operants. So um, that it's I kind of explain to clients in that aspect and I use where it's like, you know, we want to change how your dog feels about this particular mm-hmm. stimulus. And at the same time we want to teach him what to do instead. Right. So that's the kind of lesson So that's, I use so
0: that's I. what the counter conditioning side of things is, is changing how the dog feels about the thing that it's reacting to.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Um, and then I will use again lots of analogies with clients, and saying you know just uh, all kinds of different analogies. If it's a resource guarding case, I'll I'll talk about you know how how uh, somebody coming up to them in a restaurant, sticking their hand in their food is would be a bad experience and create a negative association. And I'll again use analogies like, all right, so somebody comes up to your ref, your plate at the restaurant and drops a hundred dollar bill next to it. How is your association going to change over time? So lots and lots of analogies i use
0: yeah and it's actually it's great to hear
1: someone else's analogies right because a lot of the time
0: we just come up with those for experience and you know it's, it's great to it's great for you yeah to hear that what's worked for you especially because you're explaining this so often one thing i wanted to touch on because this was a bit of a, a bit mind-blowing for me when i was early on working these kind of cases is i was always taught these as two separate things you know like I'm counter-conditioning the dog now. Now I'm doing operant conditioning. I'm teaching the dog something. And actually, um, probably, in fact, I think I was reading some science that was saying that this is the most effective way of, of, of getting over these problems is to do both at the same time. I know you can't get away from, you're always doing both at the same time, but actually consciously, instead of saying, I'm just going to shove food in my dog's mouth when the trigger's around, instead, we're actually teaching the dog to do a behavior and the counter-conditioning is coming along for the ride.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, and I think we, for us as humans, it's easier for us to separate them to so we can understand them, so we look at it and we can break it down to the um, the function of that. So, so that's, what I think, what's helpful when we're describing operant conditioning and classical conditioning, but, again, they're intertwined um, and, and you can't neatly parceled them out at any point so uh, it's important to be aware of those things happening as well Yes,
0: yeah, like that i think that's right you know that's how we learn or that's how i learn it certainly like you learn those two things separately right Those are different slides on the slideshow but actually when you're you're actually practicing this those two things happen at the same time which was a mind-blowing for me because it was like you know i thought that the way we got over reactivity was just feeding the dog just keep, you know keeping the mm-hmm. positive experiences happening I didn't realize, actually, you know, we can have so much more of a productive session. if We actually teach the dog what we want them to do mm-hmm. as we're going through this process.
1: Most of the time, yes, that's what I do. In some cases, though, will will uh, lend themselves well to just straight classical counter conditioning without any uh, particular target behavior we're trying to reinforce. Uh, but most of the time I am, because I, I find it helpful for the clients to be able to concentrate on uh, something tangible so you know marking your dog for noticing the provocative stimulus that's something they can again not in those words but I, that's something they can no, focus no, okay. <laughs> on so that they have a way of of of, of you know uh, you know something to look at rather than just i'm feeding treats for when the dog sees something because then they it gets a little muddy for clients i think as well so yeah um, that's the difficulty
0: of, of having this conversation about aggression obviously things can vary hugely when you between cases so i guess we, You know, we necessarily have to talk in these kind of general ideas. But one of the one of the things that I really enjoyed from your slideshow is what I think you called the look at me method. I think I was right about that where We're teaching the dog when you see the trigger, look at me and good stuff's going to happen. Is that right?
1: It's part, that's part of it. So um, what I actually do is just, is the first step is to mark the dog for actually noticing the stimulus. So say it's a dog that has barks and lunges at other dogs. I'm marking that behavior. Just notice that other dog without barking, lunging, growling, snarling, snapping, or biting. Um, And I'm going to set that up for success by keeping enough distance and controlling the intensity of the stimulus. Um, And then, so we're marking that dog. Just notice the other dog. That's all you have to do. And what happens is the dog will start to turn back to you once they hear that marker signal. It can be uh, a verbal or a clicker or whatever marker signal you want to use. And what that dog, the dog will start to do is turn back towards you. Now you can choose to mark that as, as so that the other dog starts to become an environmental cue to say, "Look back, there's there's a dog. I'm going to look back at the handler now because I know that other dogs predict food," and so it becomes a, a a cue to look back at the handler. You can choose to mark that as well, where you it's called the disengage, where you mark for disengaging from the stimulus. I have actually moved away from that a little bit in, in, in recent years because I found it's not as necessary uh, because the dogs are are turning back anyways once you mark for noticing the stimulus so um i used to do much more marking of the disengage but now it's just the dog's doing it anyways i'm noticing the other dog hey look there's a dog over there and they keep like <laughs> it's like the whiplash of the head back ah, because they're looking back to say there's the dog hey don't you see the other dog hey they can hello and they actually start to uh cue their handlers that there's another dog in the environment so
0: yeah that's uh, interesting because i've uh I've always done that where you' where you're marking the dog for looking at you as opposed to looking at the the other dog um, but one thing that I do do is um, if the dog is struggling or or you know if we're, if we're struggling a little bit then what I might do with a dog that's really new to the process is begin with marking the dog for just seeing the other dog and then switch to marking the dog for looking at me and I sometimes I explain that to clients as like Step one, right? We're going to reward the dog for looking at the other dog. Step two, we're going to reward the dog for looking at us. So, yes. why did you so, why did you why did you convert? Why did you stop doing that again? Sorry,
1: I just I found it a kind of an un, unnecessary step at this point. So, it's, and, and my mantra is always keeping it simple. And I found that clients can just grasp grasp the concept of, of marking the dog for noticing the stimulus because the dog's going to turn back to the handler, provided they're reinforcing, uh, for you know, and the uh, what's the charm I'm looking for for you know placement of the treat? So uh-huh. if if you're if you're not putting the do- the treat right in front of the dog's nose, instead holding it closer to you, so the dog has to turn back to get it, it automatically starts to um, uh, reinforce for position. The dog turns to get the treat. So um, and I've also moved away from you know cueing, watching me or any kind of you know look at me. Watch me because it it often can become a crutch for some clients because it it works it works really well. The dog's looking at you, that's not barking and lunging and growling. However, if we don't allow the dog to assess the threat or see the stimulus, we're not doing the classical conditioning because the dog's not seeing the stimulus first. And in some cases, you run the risk of of uh, making it worse because we're saying you know just look at me, don't worry about the scary thing don't try to assess the scary thing just look at me but that scary thing's still behind you and I, and i use this analogy i'll say it's just like you know nick look at me look at me watch me look at me look at me and then but don't worry about that guy with a knife right behind you he's right behind you but look at me look at me so it doesn't allow you to assess the threat and feel safe about it um, and it doesn't also the, the classical conditioning's not occurring if you don't see the actual stimulus so the dog has to be aware of the stimulus to for conditioning to occur
0: yeah, that's interesting. That makes so much sense when you explain it like that. Um, and and I com- I'm completely with you on the whole "watch me" thing because I feel like we're adding in a prompt there that isn't necessary. And and like you said, when you, you you're always trying to simplify it, right? And and that just seems unnecessary to me. I've always looked at it as trying to make the trigger an environmental cue for paying attention to me. But as you just said, um, you know maybe by doing that what we could do is is create a kind of like you said like a crutch for the dog where the dog is just like just just doing its best to ignore the the thing it's
1: it's terribly unfair to you know when a dog is is in the presence of a stimulus that they are not feeling good about it's terribly unfair to put much pressure on them to ask them to do much because it's it's not allowing them to sort of uh, act on their own environment and to to assess things and feel safe about it so I I do a lot of just capturing, you know, it's just like, here we are, you're on the leash next to me, just be, just do what you want. And I'm going to cap- capture the behaviors I like. And the behaviors I like, are you noticing the stimulus without barking, lunging, growling, snarling, snapping and, and uh, teaching clients really how to, to become good at that. Just capturing what you like mm. uh, by, and you're going to be able to do that by setting the stages for success for these dogs by making sure your training sessions are set up appropriately uh, because a lot of them get, they struggle because they they are, they're in damage control mode all the time, and they they ask, what do I do if my dog barks and lunges? What do I do if? And and getting them on the other side of the coin, teaching them how to uh, manage the environment properly to set things up for success for the dog, so they can then capture the, the desirable behaviors. Uh, it goes a long way. Did
0: you find that if you have, if you're just rewarding behaviors that you like, that sometimes your criteria can get a little bit too loose? You know, like it's kind of like this argument over the over Dro, right? Differential reinforcement of other behaviors. Sometimes it can get a little bit messy, and it's like, oh, does the dog even know what we're reinforcing?
1: I think in some applications, yes. That that I would definitely say that's a valid argument. I think, though, with with dogs who are experiencing um, issues with aggression, and because because those are issues are some driven by an emotional response, so. When we're doing DRO procedures where the classical condition, again, is still coming along very strongly in most cases. So I find it not as muddy in that particular context versus if I'm doing, you know, a a shaping session with a dog or something on uh, when there's no underlying negative emotional response in that particular context. Does does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, no, no. That makes sense because I guess your primary aim is sorting out the emotional response as opposed to trying to teach a dog to do something specifically,
1: in that particular context, yes, yeah. Um, but it is it is better for the client to just focus on a target behavior. So, no, just noticing the stimulus. They could be sitting, laying down, standing. Uh, and that doesn't matter much. It's just I, orientation. I,
0: I guess the behavior of the dog that you actually want it's the that you actually want the dog to do doesn't really matter at all because our primary focus is the emotional response. It only matters in the kind of convenience to the person or, as you said earlier, the kind of acknowledgement of the dog or the ability of the dog to kind of perceive what's going on around it. So, and I'm one, well, firstly, would you agree with that?
1: Yes. Right. I think that's, that's accurate. So
0: in which case, are you quite fluid with what you allow the dog to do? So for example, if we have a dog that really loves offering downs or really loves offering sits or... Really, you know, whatever the behavior is, is that something that you you just go okay? Well, the dog is offering me this, so I'm going to reward it, or do you prefer a particular behavior?
1: Um, again, I, I, I allow the dog to kind of just act on its, so, you know, it's it's you do what you want, just as long as it's something I like. I'm going to it just because, especially if a dog starts to sit and lay down in an environment when there's a provocative stimulus, that's showing you some level of comfort. Um and so that I'll take that. I'll take that you know, all day long. You know
0: what this reminds me of is um the approach that a lot of scent dog trainers use to teach indications. You know, there are a lot of people that just kind of start off by teaching the dog to find the thing and then just start capturing what the dog offers. And then that becomes the indication.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very, very similar. And you just, it's just capturing behaviors you like in that particular context or whatever context you're working in. So, uh, it's, that's, that's why I love much more of just allowing the dogs to be and, and kind of figure things out, problem solve on their own. Occasionally I, I do work reactivity cases. I tend to work mostly frustration
0: reactivity cases. Um, and, and, but occasionally you come across a dog that, It can be really difficult to do the kind of generic counter conditioning uh, approach with because the distance, the threshold is so far that it's like I'm thinking of one dog in particular that I came across that, you know, we had the other dog, uh, the trigger, like a whole field away and he's still reacting. I'm wondering what you do in those kind of situations.
1: Um, so with those cases, I'm usually teaching some foundational skills first that we can employ um, in, in those kind of contexts because that, those, those are difficult. So we do need to teach uh, the, the clients uh, better handling skills. Uh, it's similar to like um, dogs that are in the city environment. It, it's the analogy, again, I use is, um, you know, people driving in the, in the countryside, in the suburbs don't need to have quite the same skills as somebody driving in New York City and it's the same with handling dogs you're out in the suburbs you don't have to have quite as good handling skills as you do if you were going up and down an elevator uh, with your dog that's got issues with other dogs and people so it's a different set of skill set i will teach right away so those. Dogs so that need that much distance, oftentimes I'm I'm going to uh, set things where I, I again modify the environment. So I use things like cars to dip behind or bushes or to block the visual stimulus, and really get the client good at um, the timing of it. Um, especially if you have dogs that have uh, been conditioned well to hearing that marker signal, uh, that can often prevent escalation so and I, I do this all the time clients they I, I don't i tell them not to make a habit of it because we don't want to shape it in the wrong direction but sometimes you, you dart out from behind the car and the dog sees another dog from 500 yards away and if you're fast enough with marking it it de-escalates it so it says the dog quickly snaps their head and says oh my gosh there's another dog and then the, the client's like good or yes or click and the dog quickly is like, oh wait okay i'll i'll Turn back and then, and then he's gonna whip his head back. And say, oh, there's a dog. And then you're, good. It, it, it's it. So if the timing is really good, then it actually can uh, play really well in those types of environments. Or when there's a, when the dog just has such a large threshold distance. So um, I might incorporate other things too, like play, um, getting the dog engaged with play, or, or so we have longer breaks in between um, any kind of exposure to a stimulus. Um, things like scent work. Sometimes I'm incorporating those. I'm doing duration feeding, which is just using a longer uh, duration reinforcer, so uh, things like spray cheese or, or items that the dog has to lick or chew on for longer. I do things like um, treat bombs, you know, some big handful of treats in the grass, because that's going to buy you a little bit more time in between each trial, each each uh, moment with the dog seeing another dog. So you can get creative in those environments. It's just, again, it's case by case uh, of, of those dogs it's funny i have this one picture of this dog i had um, that was so reactive i it's i think it was over a thousand yards away this dog had issues with other dogs and i took this great picture because we went to this field and there was this, this little tiny little dot at the top of the hill and the dog was just it's just such a, a fun picture to see that much distance is needed sometimes
0: yeah it's uh firstly that was just fantastic to that was a fantastic little bit there because that idea of charging the, you know, charging the marker and, and utilizing that is just, I think that's genius. That's, you know, so obvious, but yet so easily overlooked. Um, yeah, that makes total sense to me. It kind of, it's almost like the classical conditioning and it almost functions like a kind of like a positive interrupter, right? Like it's just like interrupts the behavior there and then, right. And you're still getting that counter conditioning that you, you wanted.
1: Yes. In a sense, you just have to be careful because it, with some dogs, if you, if you continue to do it at that level of intensity, that you could actually shape the dog towards the wrong behavior, right? So if the dog's intensely darting towards the other dog and then you interrupt it using the marker. I guess, can, uh,
0: you know, I guess even in that situation though, at least you're, even, even if all goes wrong, at least you're moving in the right direction on the emotional response. Uh,
1: theoretically. Yeah. Um, I think, think we have to be careful though is when we're playing with with that sort of uh, teetering on those thresholds and you know when you've got the, the complex emotional states you know and with stress involved um, and so you can it sometimes can can backfire on you if the dog's exposed in, in a manner that is too stressful for it. It, it, it we can try it may feel like classical conditioning at the at one point but then um, at the fallout after of uh, the dog being such a stressful state for, for a longer period can be uh, tricky. So you have to monitor that, I think. It's it's,
0: that's interesting, though, because one thing I wanted to get your opinion on, because it feels like this is like either people are recommending this or they're cringing at the recommendation of it is this idea of for dogs like that, that um, go over threshold at huge distances, this idea of trying to counter condition them to say the scent of a dog. Is that something that you ever do, or is that maybe not useful?
1: So conditioning to the scent of the dog.
0: Is... So, like counter-conditioning the dog to uh, the scent of another dog.
1: Um, I think that can be done absolutely. Um, you can. I've done it. Certainly done it to the sounds of other dogs, collar tags, uh, those kind of things that predict the uh, eventual. Uh, visual of another dog so sense i think yes um it's not
0: something you use regularly, that,
1: though. yeah no no it's in most cases it would be the very uh the dogs that have a, such a difficult time at any distance with other dogs so but i don't think because it's two different things you know they're not smelling the other dog when they see it from a thousand yards away You know, so there's, they're seeing visual first So you kind of I've got a couple of different things going on there. Uh, can it help? Probably.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one of the things I like to do is end my reactivity sessions with tracking. Um, and because mm-hmm. and, I find that that just really helps to uh, relax the dogs, get, give them a bit of a positive experience in a training scenario. And also, I've always thought, you know, this idea of maybe having a dog with the trap player, but then I don't know if that's actually helpful or if it's just more of a kind of a more of a, I don't know. I just don't know if that is actually
1: helpful. I think it's extremely helpful. I think uh, allowing the dog some time to just de-stress after a session. Uh, experience, uh, I've, I've used that. Um, I've used nose work in some cases. I had one German Shepherd client that, uh, that you know, she, terrible uh, situation. She came from sort of a hoarding situation, so very fearful, uh, fearful of people and other dogs. And the client had um, some physical limitations, so I kind of was doing most of the training and became sort of a day training scenario. Uh, and my goal was just to get her to just be, you know, okay with some people, but she wasn't entered into food, and that's a whole nother topic for another podcast but um, food wasn't a big motivator for her and toys weren't or, or play weren't a motivator for her at that point uh, what was a motivator for, for her was just uh, being able to investigate uh, with smelling the environment so sniffing around so that's all I did for about 80 sessions over the course of a year i just took her to different places the parks where all of the people or dogs were at a large distance so she's aware of them but she's sniffing and desensitizing that environment and that's that's what we did never used never used any kind of toys just exposure to the environment but allowing her to be and just just because she loved, loved using her nose she just wanted to go sniff all the other dogs female and everything like that and it, what a remarkable change in this stock over the course of a year, just by doing that. So sometimes you have to think a little outside the box with with how we work with you know, fear or reactive cases. Right. So, so
0: let's let's get to the client side of things because one thing that I wanted to ask you about again is, and I think you kind of mentioned this briefly, is a lot of the people that have been have owned reactive dogs for a long period of time have just kind of developed these habits of of getting by. By means of just completely avoiding triggers at all costs. And then when you go in and you recommend counter conditioning and all of this kind of stuff, you find that those habits are so ingrained that they really struggle to stand even at a, a threshold that the dog's um, comfortable at without just kind of going into quick runaway mode. <laughs> right. right. So, is that something that you've come
1: across? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, I see it quite often, actually, because. Uh, management is is highly reinforcing for for clients because it, if, to avoid the problem, you don't have to face it. So uh, I find a lot of clients get into that mold. They also, uh, what happens too is it, we think of this vicious cycle of the dog being managed really well. So if I put the dog in a crate in another room and people come over, I don't have to deal with it. But then when the dog finally sees somebody, when they come over that, you know, after hearing 30 people come over, it's a big deal for that dog. Uh, so it, it can become this sort of more problematic, and you have to think about the the welfare of the dog. In some cases, this this, this management can really impact the overall welfare uh, of of these animals. So uh, we have to be careful with with management scenarios. Um, so so yeah, clients can get stuck into that mold. So what I like to do is just show them some little. Um, you know, dive, you know, little bits of success. So showing them that what I can do is, if especially if it's a dog-to-dog dog issue case, I will work with the dog first, so that they can see how they're going to be successful. Because as trainers, we're often going to be able to get the results much faster, even in just one session. So that's typically what I'll do. Is if I can work with the dog. I will get my my hands. Is that on you your know, going on your own
0: or with the client present?
1: With a client present usually because I want them to witness them saying, Whoa. It's like loose it's just like loose leash walking, you know, with, with when we go out there and we start working the dog on a leash that typically drags the owner everywhere and that you start working with the dog and the dog's wonderful with you. And it's not because you're doing anything miracles. The dog number one you teach the dog right away. You can't pull me because that's not what we do. And you you're just using a high rate of reinforcement to teach that behavior so And the clients are usually just blown away by that. They're like, wow, that's just so amazing. So if you do the same thing with aggression issues, so dog dog reactivity or even dog to human reactivity, and you, you can make those changes that gives the client hope and that then they buy into the well let's let's this could work here this we can do something here so um, and same thing with stranger danger cases you know quote unquote stranger danger cases where people go to the home and the the, the dogs you know barking lunging all that stuff if we do things correctly when we approach the dog or how we start initially handling the dog if we can um, it's going to make a big change in the client's mindset about how success can move forward.
0: Yeah. Um, one thing I also picked up from your talks was I know you're a big fan of, of using video to teach your clients as well, or to show them certain things that their dogs might be doing, or maybe their handling skills or something that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Kind of uh, what, what do you use video for?
1: Um, everything. <laughs> I love uh, video. I, I just think it's, it's oh, such a valuable tool because you can take video, especially with, with aggression cases, dog, clients need to see the body language of the subtleties. So I'm not saying we're taking video of full-blown biting <laughs> and, and lunging and snarling. I, I will catch the subtleties so the client can be aware of them, so they can get that pot off the stove before it even starts boiling. Um, and that's something a lot of clients aren't aware of, but so I'll take video with my cell phone or my GoPro, and then um, with for just when we're doing initial work or maybe when I'm initially coming on property, so they can I can play it back to them and point out their dog's particular signals because not all dogs are going to be the same. Because uh, we can send them videos on YouTube about dog body language, but it's not going to be applicable necessary to their dog, so we can show them the actual body language like, here's your dog's you know, the the. You can see his mouth closed or his tension ridges on his, uh, near his eyes or little subtleties where they say, oh, you know, That's uh, he has done that before. Now, you pointed out, I see that. And so that, that is one way I use video. I also use video to um, have the client say, I'll say, do you have a smartphone? 9% of the time, sure, we do. Well, take out your smartphone and video me showing you this technique. So that way, you don't have to open up it behavior report tonight, I'm going to let you just take video of me doing it, and that way you can watch it back and you can understand how to do this technique later on. And watch it back, and so you know what to do. So, um, video is it's just so helpful in so many regards. Um, I have a lot of clients text me video too, you know, where they just take video of them working with their dog after left, you know, a week or two later. They send me that video, and that's going to allow me to fix things before they get into a bad habit so they'll they'll show me the technique i'll be like okay we need to maybe tweak this and it's just a great way to follow up and communicate with clients too so um, i go i go on and on video because i use it so much with clients Uh,
0: is it you use whatsapp for that right you use whatsapp to kind of have that client communication to send the videos (laughs)
1: Uh, WhatsApp, it's kind of like a a this is funny, everywhere I travel to that's non-US uses WhatsApp people in the US don't use WhatsApp that much, Um, so I just just do general texting, text messaging um, video and uh, sometimes people will upload things to YouTube as well on an unlisted link and send that to me if they're more tech savvy Um, so that's kind of the two major ways I, I communicate with video here yeah,
0: I imagine that's extremely valuable because it seems like some people really struggle to read dog body language, you know, and, and things that might seem extremely obvious to us, you know, you can see it coming, you can see it coming, you can see it coming. And they just seem completely <laughs> oblivious to what's about to happen. So to be able to video that and show them the specific behaviors, I imagine has great value.
1: Oh yes, it's it's been you know it's been so helpful for just so many reasons for me. Um, I, even if I'm doing a a, a dog, uh, say, it's the dog dog case, and I can use my stuffed dogs too a lot to show them some initial uh, responses because I can set that scenario up really well. I'll just put the dog out in a distance, the dog sees another dog, and just show them you know how to um, catch those things happening, how to to you know how to manage that scenario if it needs to be, Um, and again, using video, they can see themselves doing it or they can see me doing it and the mechanical skills involved uh, to to work with that particular issue. So um, yeah, you know, here's the other thing too is on selling video for for trainers is you're going to save yourself a lot of time. So a lot of trainers I know will go home and and send a behavior report or a uh, follow-up report or instructions to clients. And uh, they spend a, a lot of time doing that. They go home after a couple of clients during the day, and they'll spend an hour or two on the computer writing up these behavior reports, which is a tremendous waste of time, in my my opinion. Uh, because if you have video of showing a technique that maybe two or three minutes of video, which would take you fifteen to twenty minutes easily to type out in words, why wouldn't you use video? You know, because it's it's just there's so much more information that can can be conveyed in video versus words. So. Uh
0: This is something that I've changed myself recently because I found that I was just explaining the same things hundreds and hundreds of times. So what I've done now is try to take the time to actually film a video tutorial that I can just email my clients.
1: Yes. Yep. And you can just think about how much time that saves, you know, like for instance, acclimating a muzzle or if somebody has a question about muzzles, I can do that, you know, in between a session easily within 30 seconds to a minute. I'll just take a cell phone video and then I'll text that to my client and that's going to save me so much time in in terms of having to send an email or, or handout or something like that. It's just, it's such a time saver for me.
0: Yeah. Having those kind of pre-prepared uh materials that you can send people is is so helpful especially when you find yourself explaining the same things over and over again like uh so i've done that recently with whistle training some of the recall training stuff that you know tends to stay uh near enough very similar um it just makes total sense to to have filmed that and just be able to send that to people and i also think it kind of adds a nice touch right like people love to watch videos
1: Yes, I think it allows kind of adds a personal touch to if if they know they can text you or, or get a hold of you. In um, that way, it's it, it, I think it kind of adds like this concierge level service to your your clients, uh, knowing that they can get in touch with you in that way. Um, people worry about about um, people, clients abusing that um, option, but I've never had a client actually over text or text me at Odd hours. Everybody's always been respectful about it. So is that something um, that
0: you you make clear? And I don't know if you have like rules for your business or something like that.
1: I I hand what I do when I get to the first thing I do when I sit down with clients, I hand them my business card, I say, that's my cell phone and number, and not a lot of people have it, <laughs> right? I'll say that, not a lot of people have that, but you're more than welcome to text me at any time in, with any questions, because I encourage updates and questions, um, and I, so I don't actually set any rules, I never say don't text me at like 3 a.m. or anything like that, because I think most clients are aware of that, and I've never had it happen, not, not ever once uh, out of thousands of clients with my cell phone number, they've all been very good. In fact, I found the opposite. It's it's a lot of me kind of poking them and say, hey, how's everything going with Fido? Uh, what's the latest update? How's everything going? Do you have any questions? That kind of thing. It's, it's usually the, it's in the opposite order with a lot of uh, clients. I know we're kind
0: of going off topic a little bit here, but when, because I've done, I'm kind of going through the same kind of process of, I, you know, only giving my phone number to clients, but I'm wondering, do you have any kind of system for dealing with inquiries if you don't want to just have your phone number you know, all over the internet as most people do.
1: Yeah. I, I've, I only have uh, my contact uh, or my online in, uh, form that that's on my website. That's the only way prospective clients can get a hold of me. So um, I don't, uh, my phone number is not out there. My email, even I took that off my website just cause I'm getting such a high volume of requests now. Um, and it's easier for me to keep track of things if they fill out my contact form. So I know a little bit about the dog uh, ahead of time and, and kind of what the issue is. Uh, before i get back to them so right and it's, it's great uh, positioning
0: um well, one thing I, I wanted to kind of jump back on was the idea of using stuffed dogs for reactivity cases and that's something i do a lot as well and i'm curious what reactions you get because oftentimes when i get the stuffed dog out of the van people are kind of like <laughs> what you know like people are like surely this isn't going to work surely he's going to know that this is a stuffed dog and he's just you know so what How do you deal with that kind of uh, reaction?
1: Uh, You know, it's fun because I always tell them I'm when I do it. I'm like, all right, now it's time to really freak out your neighbors, and uh, (laughs) you know, we'll put this stuffed dog out on the driveway, and you have neighbors driving by, and they just there's lots of stairs. But um, I will explain to them that we can we can use them uh, for an initial assessment or initial work. With the dog, the dogs will figure out it's a stuffed dog at some point if they haven't been assessed already with a stuffed dog. Uh, but I, I can I find that very useful. Now you you do have to be aware that they 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 give fault you get sometimes false positives. So in other words, the dog is going to react differently with a stuffed dog in many cases than they would with a live dog. Um, however though they're there again I, i've got these uh, here in the states we have a lot of rescue dogs coming up from the south and other areas where there's no history of other dogs so you ask the client well how's your dog with other dogs and they're like well i don't know i've never had him around another dog and the rescue had, didn't have any information about it and so it's going to give me an initial uh first look at how he the dog might interact with other dogs again it's not always going to be um uh, accurate because you can you get um, again different reactions to different uh, stimuli like that novel stimulus like a stuffed dog uh, but it does give you some safe indications as i've had dogs go up and in charge and grab a hold of that stuffed dog bite shake hold it in the whole uh, thing that's that's making me feel a lot better that i didn't use a real dog for that assessment so <laughs> yeah it's um, um
0: yeah it's very interesting because i do come across that kind of attitude of surely surely this isn't going to work. And one thing that I find helpful actually is almost kicks up starting the dog on, look, this is what we're doing. You know, this is, it's almost like um the idea of behavioral momentum, right? Like the dog's getting into this momentum of, you know, looking at the dog and then looking back at us. Or I know you do it a little bit differently, and I'm definitely going to experiment with what you were talking about. But when I'm doing that, look at back at me, it almost gets the dog into the swing of it before we uh, go, go on to working with real dogs.
1: Oh, absolutely. They're so good for practice, the initial practice with clients, because you don't have to have anybody handling the other dog. You just put it out at a distance, and most dogs just think it's another dog um, until they get up to it and they're able to inspect it. Uh, So I think they're they're, they're really, really helpful for practice, especially when you don't have a – Um, you know if especially if you don't want to use your own dogs or if you don't have access to other dogs all the time they can be super super helpful
0: well you you touched on one of the biggest challenges there that i think that most dog trainers have is in taking on these cases is it's like you know i I i i know how to help you and i want to help you but i just don't have the resources maybe i don't have a dog that is good for this kind of stooge work or i don't have anyone that can hold the dog at a distance is how do you deal with all that kind of stuff
1: I think um, a big part is assessing the client's goals. So I'll say, what is your goal with your dog? Is it just to be able to walk in your neighborhood without your dog reacting to other dogs? Uh, Or is it for your dog to eventually socialize with other dogs, provided that it's a a reasonable goal in that case? So I I think most of the time, these clients are just, I just want to be able to walk in my neighborhood without the dog going after other dogs or reacting to other dogs. Uh, And that's certainly reasonable for us trainers that don't have access to a lot of other dogs. You can get very creative on how you find other dogs. I've used um, dog parks where we just work outside of the dog park area at a distance, you know, because all the dogs are contained inside the fenced area. I've used different pet stores, Petco, and where dogs are coming and going, grooming shops where we can maintain a lot of distance. Um, so it's very easy to find dogs out there. It's just uh, getting creative with the resources available. Um, and I will throw this out there too: is if if you're listening in, network with other trainers in your area. You know, get friendly with other trainers. Um, it, it might feel like their competition. For us sometimes, but I think it's so beneficial to just network with other trainers because they also have dogs, right? And uh, they can be decoys and they can help you out and vice versa. So um, that's another way to, to to gain access and also local shelters too. You can also, if you volunteer or, or find um, a place, you can uh, get again gain access to other dogs where you can either um, again safely use them or use them in a way that you're going to be able to work with clients' dogs. So.
0: I find that especially true of of people that are wanting to learn to become dog trainers, and uh, you know they want that in. They really because I think that when you're starting out, it's really difficult to get anyone that will let you shadow them, or will let, or will kind of help you out because of that weird dynamic about um, that weird dynamic of of eventually becoming competition, but potentially you can kind of create a kind of mutually beneficial situation there. Where if they're helping you out, then, you know, they get to sit long on your session and uh, maybe have a bit of a chat with you or whatever.
1: Absolutely. I think it's there's just so much business out there. I I, um, we need many, many more trainers, many, many, certainly with aggression. I mean, there is a a huge void in the number of uh, trainers that are able to work aggressively. There's, there's more than enough business to go around so um, <laughs> yeah it's it's, it, it,
0: it's uh, someone once told me uh, if you specialize in aggression you'll never be short of work
1: <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true I, I, I tell you Nick I get so many requests that I have to refer out to other trainers in my area uh, so many that I keep them too busy to actually take other clients it's it's amazing how many dogs need help and I think it's just with how dogs are being uh, brought in and sort of raised. And, and we're seeing more and more reaction, reactive cases and aggression cases in, in the U.S. So it's it's only going to get busier until it gets better, um, I think. So yeah. network with other trainers, refer, you know, build that network uh, because it's only going to help you.
0: And, and a lot of people do seem hesitant to take on those kind of cases um, because of all of the risks involved. And I know it's a similar thing. I was listening to a podcast with—I'm uh, probably going to butcher her name—like Malena Di Martini. Oh yes, Se- Malena. Malena. Yeah. Um Yeah, about separation anxiety. You know, she was saying she was talking about um, how so many people are scared of taking on these separation anxiety cases, um, and and you know, like you said, you know, there's a lot of demand for it.
1: Yeah, well, they scare me for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Here you are would, preaching about aggression.
1: <laughs> I would rather have a German shepherd try to take my face off than take a separation anxiety case. I'll, I will leave that to the people that specialize in that.
0: <laughs> Isn't it funny, though? Isn't it funny that you can kind of get yourself in this little niche and to one you know, there could be someone listening to this that specializes in separation anxiety, and they would say the exact opposite and vice versa. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's what you like and, and what you want to specialize in. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I, I think I think it's with aggression cases. Um, they're they're not as scary as they 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 may seem sometimes. Sure, there's some some cases you want to be very careful with, but the vast majority. Again, the 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 dogs just uh, you know they're they're very predictable, transparent. You can once you start to read them well, the the cases are again the behavior modification is not that different from case to case. It's just you know getting uh, into where you have to uh, be very good with the clients and in them understanding. I had a case yesterday that um, uh, it kept coming back to me (laughs) because because I i'm leaving for mexico tomorrow so i've been i haven't been taking any cases up because i'll be away until late april but this case was urgent um it's a it's a wheaton that was um uh going after other dogs and this this woman kept reaching out to other trainers and saying you know i I don't know what to do with the dog and what should i you know i just i've worked with a bunch of other trainers and and everybody just kept referring it back to me <laughs> because <laughs> it's the she was reaching out to. They, they know me and then we, we refer to each other. But so uh, so I ended up taking the case. But boy, what an emotionally uh, written case or charged case because it's just the, the dynamics of she's she's tried really hard. She's a well-meaning owner and a very dedicated one. Um, both her and her husband are very, very dedicated. And they're just trying to do the right thing. They're struggling, but, you know, they've gotten into where they've, worked with a couple of different trainers at, at different training styles. They're trying to return the dog uh, to the breeder and that's uh, right now hitting roadblocks. So uh, it's my, I was just hired there not to, to work with the dog, but to work with the people, to, to help them better understand the dog's behavior and what the options are. So, um, that's, it's, it's something we definitely have to practice a lot of empathy with in these cases because the clients are often very stressed and on kind of, uh, lost as far as what to do because they get so much conflicting information out there from different trainers, from the web, uh, from friends and relatives. So uh, empathy is, is the name of the game, um, first and foremost, when working aggression cases.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. It's like, um, that's one of the things that I found, you know, throughout my journey of becoming a dog trainer is, you know, when I started out, not even when I started out, when I first got interested in dogs, right. Watching the dog whisperer and all of the kind of bad stuff. <laughs> right. And I was watching, uh, these TV programs where these aggressive dogs were being, uh, rehabilitated or so I thought, and I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to rehabilitate all these aggressive dogs. And then when I actually got to the point where I was starting to work with some of these serious behavior cases, I started to realize that maybe it wasn't for me when, you know, you're getting a text one day from a client like uh, with the biggest high, you know, like my dog did this and I'm so proud of him. And then the next day it's like the complete opposite. It's like, you know, I'm considering rehoming him and he just felt like such a roller coaster and, and that's a really hard thing to deal with, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. Yes. It's something to be very aware of. Um, certainly, the, the, you know, compassion fatigue and burnout uh, are, are very prevalent in our industry. So being aware of that and being able to, um, in a healthy way, distance yourself from, from cases. Um, well, but again, by remaining empathetic and, and understanding of the client's needs, um so it's yeah it's it's, it's not easy it, it, there's 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 many weeks that go by that I that, that I get lots of those texts that are that are bad news or um so it's i don't know i think i think uh the the more you deal with it though it's sort of um the more you're able to have responses and and be prepared for it uh but I, it's definitely something to be aware of because you know aggression is is uh, like you uh, mentioned watching caesar milan dog whisper it looks it looks sexy to work with but <laughs> it's it's the complete opposite it is you know it's it's not the dogs it's it's really the people
0: yeah that's one of the reasons i think that there's been such a delay in having like a really big uh reward based uh, aggression tv show because a lot of the times this training is really boring you know like you're just adjusting distance and you're you know you're kind of conditioning the dog and You know, the impression that I always got as a teenager watching TV was, you know, it's the dog's reacting, and you're kind of, you know, like, you know, like almost wrestling the dog, and then the dog gets over the problem, and all is well, and everything's a happy ending. And actually, it's just a lot of kind of walking back and forth in a field a lot of the
1: time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, would, that wouldn't make for a very exciting TV show. Uh, the, the human side of things would be fascinating, I think, if somebody ever pursued that angle—how to how to counsel, and work with the clients, and all the emotions they're going through. I think that would be a, an interesting insight into human behavior. But yeah, the the dog part is usually very, very boring <laughs> to, to watch from the outside.
0: Yeah, it's diff- going back to the emotional roller coaster stuff. It, it's difficult because you almost have like a real. Like, those two things are playing off each other, aren't they? Like, the empathy and the need to distance yourself, right? And it's like trying to find a balance, mm-hmm. and that can be really difficult.
1: Yeah, it can be extremely difficult. I, I think, um, as many of us get into this for the animals, for the dogs, um, it's it can be very difficult when... We know as a trainer, or in, if it was our dog in our situation, we'd be able to make a difference. But because the client is struggling or has other uh, issues going on in their own lives, uh, that they they can only accomplish so much. That's that's one of the most difficult things to, to deal with, I think.
0: It sounds um, like you kind yeah. of have your business mind on, and you know your your you know you've you've spoken already about some of the business stuff, and I'm wondering maybe if that helps to kind of siphon out some of the people that aren't extremely committed to the process. And and you know, rightly so maybe because it seems like you know these these cases are a huge undertaking, and people need to know that know what they're getting into, don't they? In fact, I remember you talking about this, Michael, in your talk where you're talking about you know having a talk almost upfront, even about the kind of financial side of things. You know, can you? Um, can, is this something that you're going to be able to afford to be able to go through this process and and pay for coaching and pay for? Maybe someone to look after the dog or whatever it is.
1: Uh, yeah, so I actually do something. It's called the prognosis uh, talk. Is there's actually 18 different variables I would I would uh, assess with a client, and um, I don't go through I don't cover all of those with the client. I'll, I'll remember which ones are important in their particular case, and I can cover everything from you know the dog's bite history to the client's finances to the client's time that they can commit, um, how they're how the client is feeling about their dog, how much they kind of have left in that you know quote unquote um, emotional bank account. Um, and so you assess all those factors so then you can have that discussion with the client to get on the same page with them uh, because if they have lofty goals or, uh, or they're thinking in a different mindset than you are, that's going to set the case up for failure. So it's very important to be aware of what the client's thinking and what their goals are and what's reasonable for their case. Um, I, I think a good rule for for behavior consultants and trainers working in the aggression cases is, is the 51:49 rule, where I give 51% of my efforts if I get 49% back. And so I'm always there for the client. I'm always going to give a, give a little bit more than them, but I'm not. I'm going to set myself up for burnout if I'm going in there 90:10, uh, because it's it's going to take its toll uh, very quickly if you do that with all of your clients.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's great advice. It, yeah, I, I love all the stuff you say. I feel like I get, I get so captivated in listening to what you're saying. I forget, uh, I forget about the next question, but one thing, cause we're coming to the end now, let's, let's get to the kind of fun, silly stuff. What, what is, I imagine that doing this kind of work, you've taken some serious bites along the way.
1: You you know it's funny. I I get that question a lot because I I teach those workshops on safety and defensive handling. So I I always tell myself, like, I'm the guy that's teaching everybody how to stay safe. So if I'm getting bitten all the time, that's not really going to sell the workshops well. So um, I've actually only been bitten twice in my entire career, Uh, and and the first one was when I was not even doing many aggression cases. Uh, And it was a couple min pins that came out charging into the yard, and it wasn't. It wasn't actually really even a a bite. It was a, a Hole in my jeans to my to my calf area. Uh, the second bite was by a German Shepherd that um, I made a mistake with, and it's always it's always going to be my fault if I get bitten. Um, but it's a it was it wasn't a, one I wasn't reading well. This 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 dog was uh, usually German Shepherds are very very expressive, right? They wear all, all their emotions on the outside, so I can usually read them very well. This particular one was is very very difficult to read. So somewhat what they call a zero dog. Uh, which is giving a zero dog is just simply a dog giving zero signals they're not they're not you know growling, barking, snarling, they're not tense, they're just sort of stoic and their mouth is open and everything looks relaxed, but this one gave me a, a nice little bite on the thigh uh, that was a few years back. Um, other than that, that's about it because I'm very very careful with with dogs the last thing you want is for a client's dog to bite you as the trainer yeah uh, because of all the consequences involved with that and also how it would make the client feel
0: how do you handle those like you call them zero dogs I think that that's something that people will struggle with when you have a dog that doesn't seem particularly expressive or even like particular breeds that maybe have been bred in such a way that their body language is hard to read right like I'm thinking of like um American Akita's right like they can be quite difficult to read or any dog that has the kind of curly tail or particular kind of ear carriage. Like it can be quite difficult to read those dogs. Is there, have you got any kind of tips or, or kind of advice on, on working with those kind of dogs?
1: Um, so I just you you want to always set things up for safety. So if you know the dog has a bite history and they they have very little communication in terms of pr- uh, preceding a bite, uh, then you just assume they're going to bite. So you set things up safely so that way you don't have to uh, be an ace at that moment at reading the subtleties. Um, you know, the, as you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the dogs out there are going to give some signaling, but in those rare cases where there's just I'm going to sit here stoically and wait for you to make a mistake and get close enough, and then I'm going to bite you. Uh, those those are very rare cases, but in those rare cases, if you set things up safety-wise as far as muzzles, anything else you're going to use for layers of safety, it's going to protect you in the in those off chances that the dog does try to bite you. Uh, do, those, so,
0: do those dogs tend to be dogs that have had some kind of punishment or aversive used on those particular body language cues? or?
1: It can be. It can be. Um, and that's the, you know, we've heard that, uh, that saying, you know, don't punish the growl, which is true. We don't want to punish um, communicative signals. Um, I'm a, a bit more on the, it's it's, you know, I don't think we can neatly parcel out. Behaviors like that, Um, so like I can't just neatly remove the growl and be just left with a snarl and then the bite. Uh, I think there's a more of a fluid escalation involved when we're talking about that. Um, However, yes, I think there is um, dogs that have been punished for uh, aggressive behavior typically tend to escalate more so that the fluidity jumps faster, if that makes sense.
0: So are some of those dogs then just dogs that for seemingly no reason seem to maybe not be so communicative.
1: Um, It's interesting. I think that dogs can start, we can start to suppress communication In other words. I have a a case I'm I'm working on now where the dog um, was um, exposed to aversive training and really just, just, well, the communication just went away. I mean, this is very close to a zero dog, and it, it's very interesting how much now that we've taught him to sort of express his own behaviors again, saying, okay, you can behave on your environment the way you want because we're going to reinforce you for desirable behaviors. It's so fascinating. His communication is coming back, so he's now kind of whining for the first time. He's We've heard a few of his first barks. Uh, it's it's really fascinating when you when you start to open up the dog's world as far as being able to act on their environment, and and this dog is just a perfect example of that. Punishment was uh, really just suppressing all communication, and now that he feels like he communicates, we're starting to hear these beautiful vocalizations for the first time. So uh, fascinating stuff sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. As you speak, I'm kind of thinking of a dog that I know that um, is aggressive towards people but you know you don't see any of the vocalization you don't see any snarling or growling there just seems to be almost like a determination to get to the person to bite them right like there isn't um, there isn't much else like, there's just the i want to get to that person <laughs> and that can be quite <laughs> difficult to deal with because if you don't know that that dog is like that then you could just think oh you know she's coming over but you know <laughs> she's coming over to nail you <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes yeah, uh, those those dogs you have to be careful with there's, there's, those are the ones that often uh, end up biting somebody pretty severely too because they just didn't, you know they're they're becoming efficient at it uh, It's this kind of the, the term they're just getting, getting efficient at the behavior because the other signals weren't working so um they just say well i can just bite because that works not many people will stick around for a bite
0: no definitely not so where can people find out more about you michael
1: um so i've got um my website that is pointing right now to my my complete canines website but the easier name to remember is aggressivedog.com, Um and that points that that's i've got some things in the future in store for that uh domain name that'll be coming soon but uh that's pointing to my my actual uh complete canines is my business name yeah so, that's
0: a great um, domain name
1: Yes, yeah, I invested in that a, a few years back. I just haven't had a chance to um, get it up and running, but I will soon.
0: Oh, fantastic. And then
1: um, I've got, uh, you can get me on Facebook, uh, Michael Stracaccio, and then also on Instagram, uh, Michael, at Michael So,
0: Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's really great to have the opportunity to talk to you about aggression. It's something that a lot of people struggle with, and I think a lot of people are really intimidated by it.
1: I appreciate it, Nick. It was, it was a great uh, podcast. I, I, I really had a good time talking about all this stuff. Could go on for days if I wanted to. <laughs>
0: hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. i really love talking to Michael and I really rate the way he goes about things. Of course, as always, if you want to grab the show notes so you don't have to look for all of Michael's links, then you can go to www.nickbenger.com slash Michael hyphen Shikashio and also just a quick reminder that if you want to book in a Skype consultation, if you want to work with me and go over the um, either the concepts or the behaviours and the things that you're struggling with, then you can do that at nickbenger.com slash book we will, once you've booked in, we will arrange a consultation via Skype or via Facebook Messenger or whatever works best for you And we'll meet up and we'll actually go over these things and and I'll be as in-depth as I possibly can and um, make sure that we have some kind of follow-up so that you're actually, you know, following through on all of this stuff as well. Because it's really important to me that I'm working with people that are very committed to the training. That's something that I, you know, we spoke a little bit about that in this podcast and it's something that is extremely important to me. I only want to work with people that are really committed to doing the right thing and working through this training process so if that is you if you're maybe you've been a little bit on the fence right like i've spoke about this quite a few times now on the podcast um if if that's you and you you are ready to make the commitment you're ready to um, take this training stuff a little bit deeper and actually have like a, a proper consultation then you can do that at slash book thank you so much for listening have a great day